And welcome to the Dice is Screaming. Oh yeah, we're back. Yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's been a little while. It's been a little while. I had, oh man, there's no nice way to put it. I've had a really rough month. Uh, Sorry. I, I was so happy when I got back from vacation. Everything seemed like it was going so well, but uh, I lost a lot of people that have actually passed away in the last month. So it's it's been a lot of grief and uh, a lot of like gatherings uh, uh, celebrating the lives of people that a lot of us were very fond of and that we miss so yeah like a, enough of the grim topic but uh, <laughs> I'm back I'm yeah back. and he's Mike and I'm Randy so yeah we are and this is a dice screaming podcast the failed will save from a gibbering mouther we're confused and don't know what to do, so we'll probably attack something or mess it up. <laughs> There's a few random eyes just poking out here and there and a whole bunch of chatter. We yeah, we don't even know. <coughs> we have no pretense of sense. Well, we never offered one in the first place, but here you are. And uh, yeah, today we're going to be talking about... Blades in the dark, not knives in the dark, not knives out. No, yeah, it's for the gaming podcast. It's the equivalent of a thirty-foot rope for a fifty-foot cliff. <laughs> True, but if you can take that two dice six, you'll be okay. But we're walk it off. We're gonna be. Uh, yeah, it's just two dice six. Um, today we're gonna be talking about a game that's been making a little bit of a splash and. Uh, you know, we've been talking about things like movies and stuff like that. So getting back to some of our core, but we're also creeping up on that 300th mark. And so we've been a little remiss on talking ding, about ding. some of the things that we wanted to do to celebrate this and uh, celebrate with you guys. Uh, because, of course, you listen, uh, you folks support us, and we really appreciate that. So. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and pull the Band-Aid off. Uh, we're going to start the hype train. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got uh, reactions to give away for this. Um, Reaction Figures has issued a bunch of D&D action figures against Yankee, um, the Sorceress from the Errol Otis uh, Red Box set, and the Afreti from the Dungeon Master's Guide, First Edition, Advanced Dungeon Dragon's Guide, Dungeon Master's Guide. So, I'm going to be offering that, Mike. Uh, classic X-Series module. Right on. Yeah, uh, not the reproductions. This this is an actual vintage module. So, its precise name will be given in our next podcast. Oh, okay. So Yeah, I yep. like I've now revealed what type uh, and genuine age the item is. And then, like our final, there will be no more teasers. The exact announcement will be in... Our next podcast right but, on but yeah so you can see that there's a couple of things on the table here that are like i, I feel like these are pretty cool right <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is totally worth it to us because it's a 300th and we just want to celebrate right and also uh it's dice an accomplishment for us man we've been at this a while yeah we have um also my di my wife has uh given us a dice bag to give away so i'll be our third prize so we'll have first place mike's module that Yet to be revealed. The second place is an Afreti action figure from Reaction. And uh, 
a dice bag for the third place. So how you get these? Well, we'll reveal that next podcast, but pretty much uh, get those Facebook accounts warmed up, folks, because we'll be giving those away to anyone who puts up a comment on our 300th podcast. Yeah. So we're going to have a, when the 300th podcast goes up. We want all the comments and we will be looking at them. We will be taking a full list of names. We will jot them down the old fashioned way, assign a randomizer, you know, for numbers. And then the randomizer will. Well, it'll be a dice roll because I have the um, expert dice set, uh, the one with the die three, die five, die seven, along with the standard die four, die six, and all that. Yeah, so hopefully we'll get maybe able to use the die 14 or the die 16. Oh, wow. And if we get really lucky, maybe I'll have to use the die 60. We can dream. But, yeah, so that's what's coming up. Uh, just giving you folks a head up. We'll be uh, recapping these. And uh, next week, of course, we'll have our uh, Mike will reveal what it is. So this is our 298th podcast. And uh, the reason why we're going for a 300 celebration is because on comic books and other such things, the 300 issue is really important to a lot of people. Um, Very few comic books, and pretty much you can go on using both hands the number of comic books, maybe fingers and toes for a few others, that have passed the 300 line. We made that. You know, obviously, you know, Batman, The Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Look, some the, of the obvious classics and long-running standards uh, that have carried over from the early days of comics, they've made it. But like but, Larson's Savage Dragon and uh, Cerebus and a few other, well, Knights of the Turntable has joined that lofty. Yes, illum- it has. Illuminated crowd. Exactly. Go, go, jolly. So we're taking our, uh, we're taking our bow. And make another 300 podcast for you folks, and we're glad you listen to us. So, um, some things been happening in the uh, gaming world. So, we're just going to take a little walk around that. Like Gen Con just finished here last week. Yeah, we we were thinking perhaps an examination of the Gen Con phenom uh, coming up in an episode soon. Yeah, uh, they're going. Uh, I think they broke over 70,000. Man, I remember just a few years ago when we went, it was just breaking. Or had regularly started breaking 50,000 in attendance. Yeah, which, uh, look, it's no Woodstock, okay, folks? I mean, obviously, like, we're, we're measuring apples and oranges here. But in terms of gaming conventions having a profound and significant numerical impact, uh, that's really impressive. Because we, we come from an era where the numbers were far more modest. And we have lived to see these things grow in scope and scale until some of the beloved venues that we enjoyed going to in our youth. We just have to candidly admit they're not big enough to handle a gaming convention. I mean, saying gaming convention now doesn't mean, oh, we're going to have 20 nerds rattling around a cafeteria. <laughs> that is not... That ain't how this goes down anymore. That it One is day we will different... reveal the uh, battle con here in Battle Creek that we uh, micromanaged. <laughs> it was actually pretty fun. Yeah, uh, it, tiny, 
tiny events, uh, God love them. Okay, they're, they're fantastic. I, I approve of them. Yeah, we had 200. But, but Gen Con has, over the, the decades, it has morphed into a massive, significant event. Uh, and it's wonderful to behold. Uh, man, <laughs> couldn't be happier. I mean, obviously, a mob scene does make it harder for, you know, like some of us who we were spoiled rotten and had it easy and like, oh, there's so much easy access to parking. And, you know, like, oh. <laughs> and there's so many hotels to choose from. That's how it used to be. Oh, no. No, no. This is like going on Shriners weekend in Vegas. Like, what do you mean? There's like no hotels left in town. You know, there's a motel like uh, 40 miles out into the desert. Uh, run by a creepy guy that occasionally dresses like his mom. Oh, you know, well. Just, <laughs> oh. That's the last inn left. Yeah, I see why. Uh, that's what it's like now. So I'm, I'm not saying it's it's more convenient now, but I am saying that, man, the legacy is secure, okay? At, in terms of popular events, oh, freaking winning. Well, um, I mean, I think Wizards has dropped the ball. Oh, sure. And that they don't uh, headline it anymore. I mean, now it's Paizo who pretty much headlines it. And boy, did they have a great weekend. And not only did they announce uh, what's coming up, uh, they had to push some product back because of the remasters coming out. But they've also announced that Starfinder 2 will be giving, uh, be getting a second edition. And uh, that's kind of created a little bit of a stir because Starfinder hasn't been out for very long. I mean, it was 2017 when they first launched, but they're giving a second edition that's going to be using the Pathfinder 2E engine and as well being made orc compliant. Yeah, I was about to say that while I personally never give my approval to swift uh, revision issues where like you know, five years after you publish a thing, let's publish another edition. Uh, in this case, I, I'm giving them a pass because, and only because, they have had to legally restructure a lot of their terminology that prefaced a lot of their issues and some of their rules structure uh, to bulletproof themselves against potential conflicts. Right, and Pat so that <clears throat> I'm going to let them have a pass this time, <clears throat> but only this time. Okay, uh -huh. you get this done, I expect to be into the 2030s before I start hearing any of this talk of like, oh, I, I think you're ready for Starfinder 3. No, <laughs> but but this, this I understand. So I'm not going to give them any grief at all. Well, if there's any rancor, it should, still should be directed directly at a Wizard's handling of the OGL. They didn't need to do this. Yeah. And had this not happened, uh, they would have been plugging right along merrily with 2nd Edition and they're going to have to push some stuff back because of this. But, uh, hey, you know, it is what it is. Nonetheless, uh, the remasters look, uh, the covers look gorgeous. I really like uh, Wayne Reynolds' uh, illustration ability. That man, definitely his roots in the game, coming from a gamer himself, has really shown it as artwork. Not that other gamers and artists haven't been there before and done an exceedingly well job. But, look... We were treated at a time, as especially me and Mike, and this is where we get to uh, sit back in our rocking chairs and reminisce about the good old days. I mean, those um, 
Dragon Magazine covers by Elmore, oh. Caldwell, and Parkinson back in the day, as well as uh, the Dragon Lance, the treatment that that got, like almost a full movie-like production of its rollout. That was really good stuff. Uh, yeah, you're not going to see the like of that again, but we still see very good stuff in the way that, and when I say you're not going to see the like of that again, you're not going to see the like of that again based on that Elmore was not a gamer or Caldwell or any of those guys. They were great artists were in a fantasy, genre. Fantasy book cover artists. I mean, they, they weren't personally going home and rolling dice, but they certainly understood the literature yes. and culture of the time. They, they definitely were, uh, pulled and in. hell, they informed you know the the formation of gaming things. yeah they they helped set a look and a feel <laughs> those so, books that they drew the covers for uh, were the food and drink that we were taking in uh, as consumers yeah i think as a just we're going to ad hoc this just as a <laughs> do we do anything else no we don't <laughs> okay so just ad hoc in this i just like to say that a lot of I think Elmore's cover of Star Frontiers, that crashed spaceship with the uh, Yazarian with the laser rifles, weird looking baboon like uh, monkey alien, and you know, the dude and the gal coming off a crashed spaceship. Exquisite. I mean, you just can't say more science, adventure science fiction than that. But I think a lot of their other stuff, uh, their covers of Dragon Magazine, I think, get transposed onto the cover art that was there. I mean, easily later they did a reissue of the first edition when it was easily doing, like the Pegasus, Pegasi fighting the Red Dragons on the Monster Manual, the robe, green robed Dungeon Master pulling the doors open on the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Wizard fighting some imps on the Player's Handbook. Yeah, those I think loom large in a lot of people's minds. Uh, not taking anything away from the original artwork of the Trampier oh, idol Trampier. Yeah, on the player's handbook. is it, Oh, which is a personal favorite of mine. But yeah, I think people try and uh, sometimes transpose some of the uh, Dragon Magazine's covers. Like uh, One of my favorite ones of Elmore is the knight with his horse rampant fighting some orcs on a mountaintop or on a hilltop surrounded by forest as well as the uh, cover of the uh, companion on Dungeons and Dragons with the guy with the two-handed sword, magically obvious, fighting a green dragon. It's about to bite it. <laughs> Welcome to my giant sling or my dragon sling two-handed sword. Yeah, yeah, the art. I, like, I, I commend to people our uh, much more ancient podcast many, many years ago. One of our early ones was the art of D&D, &D, the yeah. art of gaming. Uh, where, yeah, it was just a little tribute to some of the artists that made such a huge difference. It's it's a totally worthy listen, because believe me, like the atmosphere in which we reside now would be very different if it had not been for these people's contributions. They are, like, literally essential. Right, and when you see, to bring it back to the modern age, to circle at home, well, I think that some people have transposed a little too much onto maybe the older artwork being as prevalent as it was it wasn't until later um, now we have a new era it's being threatened by ai art and yeah 
You know, I, I see like Paizo had a, uh, they had a thing that they said they weren't going to use it. And a lot of other companies have fallen in that step because of what you say is because the human element is what makes it. Um, it transforms it from just a simple graphic into something much larger, and um, I, I, bigger. There is a personal touch that cannot be matched. Like in terms of developing stock backgrounds, um, I, I see the usefulness of AI and I, I'm not, I, I refuse to go down the road of absolute instinctive gut level. Like this is how maximum overdrive started. You know, I, no, no. Okay. Let's scale the panic back. I see the usefulness of it in making things accessible to people who do not have those skill sets themselves, uh, to be able to engage in creativity with a tool that makes it possible for you to express something that otherwise, like you literally could not have done it. And I'm one of those people like they're, Hey, I'm perfectly willing to brag that there are things Mr. Mike is great at, like you need a house painted. Holy crap. Am I good? <laughs> you need some sassy commentary. Okay. I, 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 I'm a fair hand at that. Some of the time, particularly if I've got my, my scotch in me. Uh, but leaving those aside, one thing I'm truly not is an artist. I, I cannot, I cannot get an idea from my head onto a piece of paper in a visual medium. And I can't even do it using like the computer brushes and mediums. I, I gave it some efforts and frankly, they were terrible. I, I don't have the patience. Uh, and I also lack a bit of the coordination. So I look at this and I see a tool that would be in a toolbox that would make it possible for me to quickly express something in a visual medium that I would not have been able to do a year ago. I'm pleased by that. But from a corporate standpoint, the potential for abuse is so rife uh, to you like, oh, at last, we don't need these artists suckling at our teeth. Um, we, we don't need these writers, you know, slowly winnowing away our billions in profits. Um, all these leeches who, who, you know, are of no value, just working, you know, taking all that money from our hard work, which without writers or artists, their hard work is nothing. Um, well, wow. their contribution is nothing. Didn't create anything. Um, <laughs> they deserve nothing. Uh, I have no empathy. You mean like uh, CEOs? Yeah, that's that, that is would... exactly who I'm talking about. The yeah. the top tier here is like, how do we just get a product out of the market without having to pay anybody to work on it? It's like that is that is the abuse of AI. That a lot of companies that have a deep, serious, thoughtful working relationship with their creatives are rejecting AI in advance. Just like, we're not going to go there. Right. Cause we value, like if we lose this pool of talent in this pool of creativity, we're just going to be a bunch of guys frantically waiting for the computer to spit out the next concept. We should try to chase down a rabbit hole. Uh, that's not a good direction to go in. And the smarter companies have already figured that out. And I think that, 
as an aside to that, look, Mike, you're not trying to create your own artwork for a product to sell, you know, when there's actual artists who have spent their lives perfecting their craft, you would know how to go to them. And that's where I think that a lot of these companies are coming from, not as a backlash of some weird virtue signaling, not saying that there isn't some uh, knee jerk reaction that, yeah, I just don't like AI because I don't want Skynet, but <laughs> look, it, there's a certain point where it's very reasonable to say that with the concept of AI art, there's something to be looked at. How can it be explored and help people create things that they normally couldn't versus putting people who have dedicated their lives and their skill and their talents to making something that so they can not only be employable, but also be valuable. Careful uh, on the unemployment line. Right. And so <laughs> there's there's a lot of that that I think is necessary and real that is just not uh, there. But, and, you know, they, um, it's nice to see that finally Wizards is sort of stepping up to that rather than saying, like, you know, they, they hired an artist who does AI work. And, of course, that's what they work with. And uh, they wanted to use that artist and then now they're kind of like, well, we'll do it in this one case, but we're going to look at employing real world artists. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks, Wizards. <laughs> Trying to. Yeah, it's uh, being skillful at like making use of AI to generate art without actually having to do any art uh, yourself. It's a different thing when it's personal creativity that is stymied, and here's a tool that allows me to move past my own limitations. Love it. Uh, when it comes to a thing that will alter the environment, putting creatives out of work, that's not great. Uh, well, also stealing other people's well, work. In let's face it, because AI does not invent, okay? Yeah. AI amalgamates and then ever so slightly alters or fuses a collection of concepts and ideas and then, you know, boom, spews that forth. And it frequently is now capable of doing a better job than it used to. But it's basically taking from everybody else and then going, like, now nobody nobody has to get paid for this anymore. Oh, yeah, I'm starting to see the problem there. Like, uh, that, that, that could be something of an issue, especially if after having altered that environment, you suddenly find it difficult to find employable creatives because, oh, that's right. We stopped paying them 10 years ago and now they don't exist. The thundering herd that used to be the talent pool is gone. Like, well, you shouldn't have hunted, hunted those bison to extinction there, bro. Oh, the beaver. What were we thinking? Yeah. Ah, Jacques. <laughs> <laughs> no one will get that. So anyway, kids in the hall, bro. Kids yeah. in the hall. <laughs> right? If we didn't really mention With a bunch the... of Brooks Brothers suits in their canoe, <laughs> we'll not, we'll not throw these one back. <laughs> we'll not abuse this like we did the beef hair. Ah, oh, beef beef hair. Oh, what are we thinking? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. All right. Deep cut reference time. Anyhow, but yeah, well, guilty yeah. as charged. Just like to see that some industry standards are, I mean, yeah, it, is, it, it takes the fan base and to push wizards kicking and screaming into an ethical decision. That's what it takes. That's what they do. 
Yeah. But uh, also glad to see that uh, Indianapolis will probably be remaining the home of Gen Con for a while yet, you know, at least five years. I mean, they do. They did put that uh, clause in there that they can uh, uh, renegotiate the contract should certain things happen. And I think that's a viable choice because Gen Con is more than just uh, yeah, there's a slightly a... aging dudes in metal shirts. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, which beer bellies. is jabbing at ourselves here. Right. Okay, we're, we're jabbing at us. That That is a swift poke. How right you now. doing, Randy? Oh, nothing, just getting fat and sassy. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, Jen, some people have displayed, you know, some outrage that companies place these bulletproof little uh, clauses in their arrangements with cities. Um, and... Yeah, like the lost aspect of the debate uh, in these culture war arguments that explode periodically is that, like, and I brought this up on the show in different forms yeah. at different times, uh, brand value. Okay, there's there's a deep-seated disrespect for the value of a brand. Uh, and there is now, like, kind of a, a mental gap where people do not get that a company's identity, their brand, their logo, uh, damaging that with a large portion of the population to make another portion happy is not good for their business. Okay, there's no such thing as a business mm. that goes, well, we're not here to make money. You know, that, <laughs> that, that is not why you go into business. You know, th these are sharks. And what does a shark do except swim, make baby sharks and eat? Okay, they do shark stuff. That is all they do. They have no other purpose. Know the animal you're working with. And when these companies take steps to not damage their reputation with a significant portion of their customer base, that's not a terrible or inexplicable act. That is not yeah. like weird outside sources influencing the do stuff. No, that's money. Because money talks and BS walks, and I, like they've they've done the math on this, so they do not like to be boxed into scenarios where they have to support something that a very large number of people find detestable. Uh, I understand why they do those clauses, and I accept it. I, I'm like, yeah, that's that's guarding your investment. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that is that is understandable conduct on their part. Uh, I, I don't consider any of their conduct truly admirable because it is always rooted in, remember the shark reference there. It's always rooted well, in. Well, in this case, we're meal? not dealing with Microsoft or oh. Apple, but we're dealing with the entertainment company that runs Gen Con, which, hey, you know, the difference may be, hey, you're dealing with a lemon shark versus a mako shark. Okay. Meg. <laughs> ah! So Meg too. There's a whole... There's a whole series of things that we could probably do in a whole episode about it, but I think that yeah. you summed it up pretty well. So we'll land the plane on that. Yeah, good to Gen Con. Uh, looking forward to going there next year again. So that'll be something. That we didn't go this year, but it, our my family's return will be heralded by probably an Airbnb and an Uber subscription to move around. So anyway, sweet. The, uh, more on that at another date. But uh, last but not least, the Astro Gallum answer. Here. Oh, and yes, we almost forgot about that poor fellow. Oh. 
Oh, wow. Snake eyes, bro. <laughs> oh, well, that uh, doesn't portend well. Should I lie? <laughs> no, no, I okay. think we'll do it. All right. We'll, we'll tell them the truth. We're going to be talking about Baldur's, Baldur's Gate, Gate 3. Yeah, in stereo. Yeah, exactly. We we just, uh, we both have gotten our paws on it. Uh, we both had some time to digest some of this. Well, uh, you've gotten your paws on it. I've watched over shoulders. I'm well, too busy. The days. missus playing it. Yeah. Oh, good for her. Uh, man, I, I got to say visually stunning, but I do have some complaints. I, I do see some minor structural flaws. I don't think they're critical flaws, uh, but like aside from the ridiculous controversies that like mm. people have made out of comparatively minor elements of the game, uh, legit, legitimate elements of the game, but not that significant. Uh, aside from that, there's some minor structural flaws that like I, I could have been happier, uh, but visually, wow. So yeah, we're gonna have a bit to talk about on that one. Uh, we've both gotten a chance to have a peek at this and get some gameplay time in. Time in. So in, in the next episode, you'll hear all about that. All right then, well, we're gonna take this one to the barn, take a break, and then we'll be back with our take on Blades in the Dark. That's right, Blades in the Dark. All right. What so, we shank in the shadows. Good second title, I guess, that's nice. And uh, so we'll be back, so stick around. And we're back, so the Dice is Screaming Return. Oh, is that a good time? No, this is all the same episode. So anyway, uh, we're talking about Blades in the Dark, and yeah, yeah, I, I hear you folks. Uh, we messed it up. Uh, yes, it's Blades in the Dark, uh, not... <laughs> knives Out. What do we knife. shank in the shadows? Well, that would have been cool if we would have said that instead of saying, you know, Knives in the Dark. Yeah, that's my fault. And Knives Out. No, it, yeah, Knives Out was me. Blades <laughs> in the Dark. Okay, so let's uh, settle in and get started. Tearing right into it. Yeah. It's a, a game from Evil Hat Productions. It's created quite a stir. Um, a lot of people like it, and it's had some little bit of controversy, which we'll talk about in a bit. And then we're going to give our review. First of all, if you're like us, live under a rock and only receive your messages by snail mail. You might not know that Blades in the Dark started out as a crowdfunder on oh, yeah, Kickstarter. This was like back in like 2015. Yeah. Yeah, it did pretty well. Um, it covers pretty much a group of rogues that your players will create. Uh, mostly thieves, criminals, and all near to well-to-do's as well as... Uh, yeah, remembering that, of course, uh, darker fantasy characters in an urban environment. Yeah, there's a lot of wiggle room here for what type of individual involved in questionable enterprises you play. So it, it's not like if you're thinking it's all thievely thieves. No, no, not at all. It, it does take a variety of talents and abilities and expressions uh, to build a team that can accomplish a wide variety of goals. So yeah, there's there's a lot more wiggle room than it might sound it up front. Sure, it's but not just setting, Ocean's Eleven. Well, I think actually that's a pretty apt description of what it is. But if somebody turned the lights out and added magic kind of things, but yeah, so it takes place in Duskfall, which is roughly a kind of steampunk industrial world that 
is under a cataclysmic event that turned the whole world into a perpetual night. Eternally shrouded in darkness. The sun has been regulated to stories told to little children by their mothers. Um, It also resulted in the ghosts, or the souls of the dead, returning and lingering in the world. They no longer go to a great beyond. But um, your characters, or players, will be taking the role of some type of nefarious near-to-wells in a criminal organization trying to exploit the best living conditions they can in a decaying and gloomy environment. Yeah, shades of shadow run there, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, you're a team. I mean, you're it's not necessarily the uber futuristic world of, of Shadowrun, but you know you are runners nonetheless. You are looking for opportunity, uh, for advancement, uh, you know, for influence, for acquisition. So your crew, uh, actually a fascinating dynamic. Uh, the crew itself has a communal character sheet, which is a concept. Right. I consider you, you start by creating the uh, criminal organization. Yeah. And then you create individual characters, like either uh, like a leech or a cutter or just a smuggler or merchant, you know, some kind. Everybody's doing and dealing in illicit goods. And that is the corruption throughout the city of Duskfall is rampant. There's not even an attempt to hide it in many places. So the black market where... Yeah, it's basically New Jersey. Oh, all right. So we're I'm going there. All right. So anyway. Uh, so that just happened. Okay, focus it in. We're talking about the game, not. Uh... So yeah, all the corruption and all the things that would. With less sewage. All right. Um, there. You I, get got it. It out of I got it out. I, okay. All right. You sure? I'm a little giddy. I, look, <laughs> I've spent the last month not doing things that make a person happy. I am so, so happy to be here doing this. It's like, you don't know. This This is the closest to healthy mental activity that I've had in a while. So. All right. <laughs> well, anyway, so you create various characters based off of archetypes. And from those archetypes, then you can uh, winnow it down to like a, you can be a, a mechanist or an alchemist. If you want to, two different shades of the same, or two different sides of a coin of the same character that is basically an artificer, where the mechanist is more gear driven, the alchemist is more elixir and potion driven, giving enhancements and all that. So there's a lot of uh, different things that you can do, where something like a cutter using, uh, utilizing threats, intimidation, and violence, typically the street uh, yeah, thugs. This is, this is your sneaky tough guy. Uh, of course, like charm, also a factor, mm-hmm. you know, subterfuge, deception, uh, you know, things of that nature are also useful. So having the broad base is obviously the ideal, like much like in any other role-playing game. It is still a scenario where you want people with intersecting talents where there, there may be a little overlap, but mm-hmm. you, you want to build a group that everybody has a real strong suit and then the ability to back up the others with their more moderate skills. Exactly. And advancement. I I, want to talk about a a facet of this game that I considered very interesting. Okay. Uh, Well, I was just going to go over the uh, 
character creation process real quick about okay. the, uh, and then we'll go, go into that. I was just going to say that as you create your criminal enterprise and you give it a name, you also uh, set that as a communal sheet when you create your characters. Um, this sheet outlines what capers and uh, tasks that your uh, criminal organization is after. If you're after uh, uh, territory or influence or money or control, those are all factors you have to put in uh, some thought into. So how are you going to go and your criminal enterprises conducts itself, what is its goals, what is its primary mission, is really key uh, in helping the characters focus, but it also tells the Game Master what kind of game they should be expecting to run and what kind of scenarios to develop. Now, you yeah. want to talk about advancement? Yeah, this is a little reminiscent in some respects uh, to Call of Cthulhu, although it's it's a little uh, more meta, I think, than Call of Cthulhu. You know, Call of Cthulhu, the advancement of your skills uh, and your abilities had to do with usage. And there's a, sh there's a little whiff of that uh, at being the inspiration for the advancement method. It is what you do in this game. You know, the activities that you undertake right. will decide what skills you build upon. Uh, and I consider that great particularly for this setting. Uh, but seeing that dynamic be such a significant portion of this game, I, I was very interested to see. Right, and as you advance, it opens up tiers, and each tier has new abilities, and as you climb in those abilities, more are unlocked. Yeah, and this enables for. the ability to undertake, you know, larger uh, scale scores, larger scale jobs. Right, and missions. gain more influence. So if you want to be a smuggling uh, enterprise, and that's where you carved out your niche, you can uh, bribing uh, guards and officials to look the other way while you conduct your enterprise uh, becomes not only much easier, but then you don't even have to roll. You have a number of people on the payroll that just anomaly do that for you. And yeah. then that Things paper no longer difficulty. becomes a uh, dice rolling mechanic. It just becomes automatic. Yeah. You're no longer the chump change guy who is down on the docks personally having to bribe or threaten a couple of, you know, uh, transporters uh, to look the other way. If some merchandise doesn't make it to where it's supposed to go or gets added to something that it shouldn't have been. Yeah. You know, that, that's the personal level that you're going to have to work at at the beginning. But as you move up, as you advance your skills, some of that is the work that's handled for you. Now you've got to work on, hmm, how do I negotiate with the people who want a piece of my territory without going to full-out war? Or should I go to full-out war? And this is what I'm really going to have to deal with is clearing the way for my... Yeah, like you have a gang of cutters leadership. that you can send against your enemies, and it's just rolled in mechanics. So we'll yeah. talk about the mechanic system. And this one, it's pretty simple. Uh, basically, you roll a number of six-sided dice equal to the number of points in your matching action characteristics. So um, one through three on the dice is a non-success. It's not a failure. It just it, it doesn't generate anything. Four through five is a partial success which means that you succeed, but there can be a complication. And a six is a perfect success. Now, you know, note that like this lends the DM some room. You know, like the, that four or five zone 
uh, you know, that, that's really where the DM gets to add a little creativity. Uh, you know, right. And what complications do you assign and how serious should they be? Well, it's more of a negotiation process than a straight interpretation by the game master. Yeah. The player may have a number of ones and one through threes, but still have one six and two fives. So they'll obviously succeed, but there's going to be some complications. You send your crew of cutters to go rough up a rival's uh, clubhouse or gang um, headquarters, and you're going to lose a few. Uh, yeah, or, or they maybe, sent the message. Oh, we did it, boss, but uh, we need a little time off. Yeah, we got three guys who are yeah, like laying in beds. So then the game as and player work out what happens in interpreting those roles. And that is a unique mechanic. The rules cover it fairly adequately without being too explicit. In other, in other words, not to it's force not a, the game master to work in a certain way or players to have an expectation of failure. There's enough negotiation room. And I think that at its core is what I really like. It's because this starts to work on improvisational storytelling. And unlike some of the early stuff from White Wolf, you see less of the crunchy mechanics and more of the influence between the game master and player to tell a story that is exciting while still having the uncertainty that dice bring in. You know, uh, one of the, my complaints about another storyteller system of like this, particularly vampire ones, is that it was all dependent, all or nothing. Um, the player rolled, the game master interpreted the results, which was pretty normative for the time. And I'm not saying that, oh, that was the old fashioned way. I'm not trying to poop with that. But it spelled out pretty much what a success and what a failure was. And the player just kind of had to sit there and take it. Where in this one, they can uh, negotiate like, well, maybe I did this. And the game master can say, well, all right, well, you weren't able to take their main cash, but you were able to get a leader. So you captured one of the leaders of your rival organization, you can ransom them back or uh, pump them for information. Yeah, there's another, t which in our earlier episode on like navigating what happens when, uh, you know, like uh, how to navigate player failure, mm -hmm. okay? I mean, is failure truly failure? I mean, is it, like, right. why does it have to be death and instantaneous destruction and all is lost uh, avoiding those situations will serve you well in this game it's you know it's not designed this one is actually built to have a workaround where like okay you're not going to get to your goal as easily as you thought you were so now we've added a complication and we right and this, this allows the the consequences of even failing puts the characters in a desperate position, which gives them more room for advancement. So you're just not yeah, I, throwing I, the players we like... We should mention that dynamic here, okay? Is that like they, they have a more advantaged position where like what they're trying to accomplish is pretty easy for them. They have a kind of moderate zone where uh, you know things are neither exceptionally easy or exceptionally complicated, and they have a desperate position, which is the most complicated of the bunch that like they're under the gun like the clock is ticking everything is like you know like they're stuck behind the eight ball this is zero hour if they're in that the potential for rewards that will turn into character advancement 
are cranked up to max yeah. in the desperate position. Don't so players that. will normally look for ways to make it more desperate. and convoluted. Even if they don't, like it means that they don't react to the concept of being in a desperate situation with total hatred. They're like, this is Opportunity City. Right. Like this only happens like once per like game session. We we get in a desperate you know sitch where our backs are against the wall and this is where the this is the XP's moment. And they, <laughs> they don't do traditional XP's here. But, right. But players get it. You like they they know that this is the opportunity that they need to advance their character. Right. And it still involves a sort of mechanical approach to the rules and the systematic storytelling that is narr- was narrative driven but also dice driven you both yeah, game they, master and players they threaded do, the needle well on this one yeah and i think not only did well the threading needle i think probably the best analogy but and i'm gonna go with that one rather than put mine on there it's more the fact that you can't nail it but they did it accurately and very smoothly and had a little bit of flair to this so i think that's a very exciting part of the system so um, players take uh, stress and trauma from these actions, uh, failures and successes, which change their characters a little bit over time. Um, combat is not a, a thing in this game. I mean, yes, combat absolutely. I was trapped happens. in the sewer pipe with 200 rats. All I had was a shaving knife. <laughs> so pardon me if I, I get a little nervous tick whenever there's like a mouse on cartoon on the television so yeah uh, combat isn't like work out for yourselves how you apply trauma from circumstances but uh, right and then there's harm and harm comes in combat and um when fighting an npc it's not like the npc fights back it's another of the task resolution systems where there's a negotiated uh a series of events from the dice roll to the actions that the players take, which instead of going with stress or trauma, now results in harm and trauma. And, you know, too much harm and too many scars and your character dies. Or, you know, they uh, too much stress and your character just is incapable of handling it and, and is unstable. And you know, too much trauma, and your character has taken. Think Theon Greyjoy. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no strict distinction between combat and other tasks, whether negotiating for a price or trying to uh, fight over uh, the resources available uh, in a marketplace, and um, you know, intimidate and parlay. Combat, they're all the same. And uh, the complexity of the system, and the marvelous thing is, is negotiating between what happens in a task resolution and making that happen. Now, um, the other part is is that uh, characters also have vices, drugs, worship of dark gods, you know, you know, shit posting on Twitter. Sorry. <laughs> You mean the artist formerly known as Twitter? Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, while being hunted by the constabulary and all that. Um, and keeping one step ahead of your enemies. Um, when you reach your limit for stress, you take a trauma, 
and it was a permanent change to your character. Uh, trauma cannot be eliminated, and eventually too many traumas and your character is unplayable. That is a big thing, and it is also the, the thing here that uh, the game as it advances becomes less of a mechanical approach of roll some dice, fight your, uh, you know, you can see where fighting your enemies has a market approval or marketed effect, excuse me, not approval, of reducing their hit points and combat effectiveness. That's not here. Um, what is here is the players see from their point of view, their character is improving or devolving in a certain sense. And with that, uh, when you do capers and heists and all the stuff that is part of your uh, criminal organization, you're constantly putting an emphasis on mechanics like flashbacks, which rather than keeping a track of a bunch of equipment, you can trigger a, uh, with amount of stress, a flashback scene wherein you have already bribed the guards to get across into the uh, uh, noble's castle, or you have a uh, pre-prepared a servant to leave a window or door open so you can climb up in a rope that you've brought with you. So that also encourages improvisational playing that rather than sitting through and preparing for hours to only have the first botched stealth roll <laughs> ruin the whole game, the plan, and now you just have, okay, I guess we're going with plan B. What's plan B? Murder everyone. <laughs> I hereby declare this a black op. Why couldn't no plan witnesses. B have been plan A? So you make plans that fail? <laughs> Sort of. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot to this game. And I think that as far as improvisational and teamwork, cooperative storytelling play between just not the players, but the game master that involves them into the, the they get the characters they want. And the game master gets the type, uh, understands the type of stories that the, and adventures and capers that these guys got to go on. Yeah, this is very much a work with your players scenario. This yeah, you get not, a direct feedback of what they want to do. Far more interactive in nature uh, than a lot of other games. It is intended to be that way from the get-go and makes it very clear that, you know, you're in a collaborative effort with your fellow players. Uh, you know, the, the role of the game master in this is interpretive and negotiable and, you know, you're, you are in charge of the degree and resolution of obstacles, but uh, it is less per se adversarial and more collaborative. You know, so hopefully the players have you know, been made to understand that uh, some of that obstacle placing is still like that. That's my job. Well, yeah, they understand that. I'm not here to give you the wish list. Right. But that's what all the mechanics are there for, for their flashbacks, for their heists and capers. Those are all actions that can be resolved with simple dice mechanic with some narrative storytelling. Now, if you're not very good at adaptive or improvisational storytelling as a game master, this could be a problematic system for you. Fortunately, the book gives lots of clues and tips of how to do it, especially in that fantasy city. I would also like to mention that there's a lot of thought given to helping players tell the stories they want through the skills or through the uh, mechanics of flashbacks and understanding that there is a price for being able to kind of trump the game master and the obstacles that he places in front of you in the terms of stress that 
too much, you reach your stress limit, you get a trauma. Yeah. And, you know, you're not going to want to push your luck too far and too often. But it is rewarded by making the scene much more not only enjoyable, but also that payoff for the experience, uh, the advancement uh, stage, which is handled in downtime. So, um, as I was trying to tell us that there's a certain amount of uh, play between planning, downtime, and capers, which are minor events that you do that are handled with just dice rolls. And they can be just like mechanically uh, toss up. Yeah, I succeeded this one all while we failed and got some stuff, bad stuff. Um, those are things that help shape the tone of the adventure and give the game master and players stuff that they may not be so much interested in anymore, in, in, uh, especially as they get higher in their tiers. Now, um, it's also been mentioned that uh, there's a television adaptation of this. And, See, I didn't know about that. Yeah, as they say in 2021, it was announced that uh, a production company from uh, Britain called Warp Films has signed a development deal with John Harper, who's the author of the game, to produce a television series based on Blades in the Dark. So that's something that's interesting. And also, uh, in 2018, uh, Blades in the Dark got the Any Awards for the Best Game Product of the Year, and they also... Uh, the Covenant Golden Goblin of the Fourth Age. No, it's the, the Golden Geek Award. Well, so. yeah. That, <laughs> I don't know anything about that one. The Ennies I know a little bit about. But, um, long story short, it's received quite a lot of oculums. And as... Uh, yeah, deservedly. Yeah. I, I have an unabashedly, you know, uh, clear fondness for the concepts behind this. It... It brings back memories of some of my favorite stuff, which is Shadowrun and Deadlands. Uh, I mean, Deadlands in the terms that disadvantageous moments are the times that you also find yourself with the most opportunity for earning advancement. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the whole chip sure. system in Deadlands. Anyhow, there are tiny whip you know, bits and nods here and there of some of the best uh, fragments of gameplay from other systems. And I like the way they have been blended in this product. So, yeah, hats off to you, Evil Hat. Well, yeah, and I I think that they didn't take, but I think other systems have attempted this in various ways. They pretty much formulated a way that, to tell a kind of story that engages the players and game masters, keeping both on their toes, because the game master never know. The dice are the uncertainty factor in this one, and I think that's also Thank important. goodness. Now, there has been, as far as the controversy now, if we put an asterisk on that, there has been some controversy about uh, really the uh, Critical Role's new system, I think it's, uh, what is it, Unknown Worlds? Am I wrong with that? I had not heard of this. I was, how do you say, in the dark. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> Sorry, dude, I had to do it. No, it's not Dagger Heart. Uh, <coughs> but yeah, several. Uh, the one that they're playing, um, Candela Obscura, I probably massacred that. Uh, Unknown Worlds. Yeah, they. Um, oh, there's some similar mechanics. Yeah, they, they, there has been uh, some say that, some twerps saying online that, oh, they stole the system from. Evil hat. And, you know, here's where you're talking about. Yeah, they freely admitted that they took inspiration from some of the other role-playing games and specifically named 
Blades in the Dark as the way of their uh, improvisational storytelling mechanic. Where yeah. the NPCs don't really have abilities, they're just a uh, task resolution. But you you do get people online who don't quite understand the you know complexity of trying to hold as an IP an extremely broad concept, uh, which is almost impossible. Like it, it so um, it's less a matter of theft than like a game of. Like, how do we put our own spin on a broader concept? Everybody, uh, it, it, it's, I, I'm sorry, but these complaints to me are reminiscent of the guy. Excuse that, me, it's Illuminated Worlds. I had to do a okay. quick search. Illuminated Worlds is running a Candela Obscura. It reminds me a little of the guy that uh, uh, sued the guy, who Michael Crichton, for writing a dinosaur book. Uh, oh, yeah, well. You know, uh, <laughs> and was like, well, you know, I... He researched my material to write his book. Therefore, like his material has plagiarized my material. No, there, there's no direct line quotes. He didn't cut and paste portions of your, you know, theoretical work uh, to make his book. Uh, that that's not how this works. I, I don't think you understand what what copyright means. Well, or plagiarism or like it's not that. plagiarism when, in this that's, case, there are concepts that they plainly said that they were using. So I yeah. haven't had a chance to look over Illuminated Worlds and make a comparison myself. Blades in the Dark is a fine addition to your role-playing game library. I think that if you have a um, period where you and your regular group just can't meet uh, full-time and you don't want to be bothered with a whole bunch of online tools to get together. This is a perfect game to play because it happens completely in the theater of the mind and on small, uh, easy to copy uh, sheets or that can be transferred to PDFs. There's a lot of online support for it. And I think it's a wonderful addition to the fact that where you get away from crunch heavy rules like Pathfinder 2 and move towards uh, a more softer approach of role playing, this is a great one. Um, my big criticism is I would have rather seen like Tales from the Vulgar Unicorn setting than this one, but I get it. That's what you get. I, I will warn people of one thing world from, before we pack it in is uh, like, don't don't wind up falling into the heist hole where like it's just basically two people are going, you know, yeah, but I knew you'd do that. So I did this. Yeah, but I knew you'd do that. So I did this. Don't Don't let that happen. Put your foot on it. That's the DM's responsibility. Yeah. But overall, this one's a winner in our books. Yeah, so check it out. PDFs available on all the usual list of suspects, as well as you can get a hard copy from direct from Evil Hat Games. So check them out. But all right, well, that's going to do it for us this week. So we're going to bid you adieu and kiss it goodbye. So until next time, may, may the dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.